for the Tourist Talks Trade Podcast, where we discuss timely topics in trade, national security, cybersecurity, and supply chain issues. Hello, thanks for joining us today. My name is Olga Torres, and I'm the founder and managing member of Torres Trade Law, an international trade and national security law firm. Before we get started today, I wanted to give you a, a short summary of um, our discussion today and what it entails. Um, a lot of the work that we do for our client base relates uh, or involves compliance programs and being proactive um, in assessing company risks, conducting audits, and, and just generally having compliance programs in place that protect whistleblowers, that encourage escalation of concerns by employees at the company um, in a way for companies to stay ahead and, and learn of company concerns, potential issues, and, and, and deal with those issues before they become uh, violations. Or if they are violations, that we can uh, you know, easily tackle them and assess risk and decide what are the next steps in terms of potentially having voluntary self-disclosures to the U.S. government um, and assessing generally uh, next steps and risks. So today we're going to be joined by a very special guest because he has a unique and really out of the ordinary story in the sense that he was dealing and working for a particular company that was um, almost like a, of a shell company, right? The company that that was created to, to basically defraud and it wasn't our regular company that attempts to comply, that attempts to have compliance programs in place. So I hope you enjoyed the podcast. This is very unique, um, very personal for, for, you know, we'll share uh, the story of someone that tried to do the right thing and that really, for lack of a better word uh, or words, went through hell to, to for doing this. So hopefully you enjoy and stay tuned. Thank in you. Javier's case, it, it's just so out of the ordinary because one, you, we have shell companies, right? And we have very high level foreign officials. And, it, and it's a situation where there's not even any attempt of, you know, any kind of attempt to say that they had any kind of compliance in place because these are barely staffed companies, really shell companies, just basically a scheme. And what seems so odd to me, and, and Javier will tell us more about his story, it's it's sort of the magnitude of, you know, the, the type of money, the, the, the amounts involved, right? Billions of dollars. You know, we have prime ministers involved. Um, but also the fact that, you know, when we think, at least in the U.S., when we think of whistleblowers, right, we, we think of a certain amount of protection, right, for the whistleblower, um, right? Like you get money, for example, if if you bring a false claims act. Um, you know, we we think of protections under U.S. law for the whistleblower. You cannot the the employer cannot retaliate against you. Um, so so I'm really interested interested to understand what went wrong in your case and and for our listeners that are not familiar with your situation i mean we we end up with you in jail at some point in prison in thailand um so i, I i'm very interested to learn what happened but really what went wrong and 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 what you would recommend um you know to other people in, in similar situations such as yours to avoid having um you know, having this fallout that you had where you end up in prison, uh, being the, the whistleblower and being the person that that tried to come out and clean things up. Um, so I guess my understanding is that you were an international banker and you accepted a position as director of international business development for Petro Saudi International. And this was around 2010. And my understanding was that, or is that this was a brand new company that it didn't have a history. Um, and it was engaged in oil exploration based out of Saudi Arabia. And between 2010 and 11, you learned that there was a deal, some kind of transaction between Petro Saudi and the Malaysian government, and it involved their sovereign wealth fund. That is called One MDB. So, what happens next? Right, you learned of this at some point. You leave the company, and and what happens next? Okay, thank you for thank you for your kind words and the introduction. Uh, that was very well done. Uh, just I, I go back in time 
Uh, I used to work for Petro Saudi in 2009 and 10 and 11, but I left Petro Saudi in 2009. At that moment, Petro Saudi in 2009 was a shell company, pretty much uh, no, no activities. Uh, they or we had uh, four to five part-time employees in London trying to do some business in South America, but with no success. So I left the company in August 2009. Uh, I left to Asia. I sold my company. I took in a kind of retirement. I was 43 years old at that time. And I went to Asia. And uh, a few months later, in February 2010, so pretty much four to five months after I left the company, uh, the boss of the company, Mr. Tarek Obeid, uh, the CEO of, of Petrosavi, called me saying that he, he needed me in London to take care of the company as the number two of the company because they signed a great deal with Malaysia. And they receive a lot of money from Malaysia. But uh, just to summarize how, uh, how the scam was, that it was a joint venture. So the Malaysian state fund, 1MDB, in this joint venture was bringing uh, $1.8 billion. And in a joint venture, you need the other party to bring, uh, to bring something, either cash or assets. And the Petro City had neither the cash nor the assets. So they came up with a incredible solution uh, that I, still today I don't comprehend how banks could accept that. So they they signed, I don't want to be too technical and to annoy the, 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 the audience, but they signed what is called a farming agreement with the, with the Canadian company about some rights in uh, some Turkmenistan oil fields. Uh, these Turkmenistan were under an international dispute, meaning that they couldn't be exploited. But um, they found, they found, Petrosadi found an evaluator a very well-known guy, a, a U.S. citizen. I mean, I have no problem saying his name. He has been all over the press. It's Mr. Edward Morse. He's the, I think, the, the chief commodity of Citibank. So it's not, it's not a, a, a middleman. And he was able to evaluate Petro Saudi assets for more for 3.6 billion dollars. Again, Petro Saudi didn't have those assets. It was a kind of a, of a lease of oil fields. But with this, they they could they could receive the money from uh, from Malaysia. So as soon as the money from Malaysia left, it enters the, the banking system in Switzerland mainly, not totally in Switzerland, uh, parts in JP Morgan Geneva and parts in uh, in Kut Zurich. So that was the scheme to use the the Malaysian people's money and to find a front a front with a beautiful name, Petro Saudi. When you read Petro Saudi. It looks like Petrobras or Pemex. It looks like it's the it's, it's a company from the state of Saudi Arabia, but not, not at all. It was owned by Mr. Tarek Obeid and uh, one of the former son of the, uh, one of the son of the, the former king of Saudi Arabia, King Abdullah. So, so, so very I, very powerful players. Um, and, and again, the scheme it, it, it's almost out of a movie, right? I mean, because it was. The way it sounds, it's it's a shell company, right? There are no real operations. There are five employees. Um, if, if, if we speak about compliance of the bank, <laughs> I mean, just by googling the quality of the assets that Petro Saudi was bringing, my son is eight, but probably in two years, if, if he had Google, uh, the, the the name of the oil fields were Serdar oil fields in Turkmenistan, he would have seen that ah. It, you can't. This uh, this is a. Uh, it's submitted to. It's related by an international uh, uh, dispute, and it can't be exploited. So, the the, the assets by the fishiner were were not assets. If you can't exploit something, it means it, it is worthless. But the banks were very happy to to accept uh, this story because it was bringing a lot of money as a new as new clients uh, in JP Morgan and of course in uh, in Kuts. And furthermore, I mean. All of this, part of this was done in Geneva, in Petro Saudi Geneva. Geneva is a village. Maybe it's a, it's a big name in finance, but it's pretty much a, a small city with 300,000 inhabitants. The community of the bankers, it's it's very small. So everybody knew that Mr. Obeid had his credit card blocked every other month. So how on earth, again, I don't criticize having a credit card blocked. It, it, it's happening to me on a regular basis now, but the guy has no, no means. The company is almost a shell company. 
those are fake assets that were very easy. Uh, that was it was very easy to to, to check that. How on earth did the did the bank accept almost two billion of dollars? Yeah, that that is uh, so 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 what happens? What leads to you leaving the company? And and my understanding is that you contacted a an, an anti-corruption journalist. Like, how do you find this journalist? And 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 also, how do how do you get the data? I suppose. Like, how do you have the evidence? How does that happen? Okay, so it's it, it's a process that took uh, a few, took four years from the moment I left the company until the data were revealed to the public. So what happened is I left Petro Saudi in after a year in London for personal reasons. I mean, there is a saying that when you receive a lot of money, you can become crazy or people change. So we sort of made that process. <laughs> became completely insane. But that's okay. It's his choosing his way of living, not mine. So I couldn't stand this um, partying nonsense anymore. So I left the company. I, I, we left with my girlfriend, who, who now is my wife. We, we went back to Asia. So this is to the end of 2011. So we were engaged in 2012, married in 2013. And uh, in 2014, I was contacted by a journalist, uh, a, a British journalist. But let me just, I forgot. So when I left the company in April, May 2011, a couple of months later, a month or two later, I contacted the IT guy of Petro Saudi, who was my friend. I, I, I brought him to Petro Saudi. He was my IT guy in my company in Geneva. And when we needed a guy in London, uh, I said, oh, this is this guy, he's good at that. So let's bring him on board. So he did all the, all the, all the Petro Saudi IT settings. So when I left, I asked him a month later or two months later if he could give give me uh, the right after you leave the company. Yeah, so uh, one two months. I don't remember exactly. Okay. So I asked him if he could give me the data, and, and and he did it. He did it by pure friendship because I I told him I'm not going to publish that. I'm not going to reveal that. It's just if one day there is a prob a problem with Petro Saudi and one MDB because there were big numbers at that time. I didn't see really anything illegal. Uh, what I what I saw is that uh, Patrick Mahoney, uh, for example, the number two of the company, bought a nice house in Nothing Hill in London, a beautiful chalet in the Swiss Alps uh, for a, like ten million dollars. Mr. Mm -hmm. Obey a penthouse in London for eight ten million pounds. We were always traveling in private jets uh, and so on. So there was a lot of money uh, around Petro Saudi at that time, but I didn't see any anything illegal. But I mean, I took my precaution. I, I, I asked that as an insurance. If one day there was a problem, I just wanted to prove that I had nothing to do with the deal with Malaysia and I didn't take any kind of money related to this deal. Is, so that, the, is that what later gets you, um, you know, at some point, I think that there's something that is used against you, right? Um, is that the reason why? Was it the, the way you obtained the data or what was it? So, uh, so let, let, let's move forward. So uh, we, we're now back into in uh, in 2014. I'm living in okay. Thailand. You're living uh, in Thailand. Okay. Thailand. We had a beautiful son. He's still a beautiful son. Oh. And uh, I, I'm contacted by a journalist, Claire Castle Brown, that says that, that told me I, I I know you. I know your name. I know that you were involved in the Petro Saudi One MDB deal. I'm fighting corruption. Uh, is it is it a way that we can speak? I told her, if you come to Thailand, I mean, uh, just tell me and, and we'll discuss. And this was the beginning of a, of a, of a beautiful friendship. And um, that was the, the, the after a few months of discussion. I mean, I don't want to go into, into many details. So uh, February 2015, I gave the data officially in Singapore to Claire Castle Brown and to uh, uh, two journalists from uh, the two, the, the owner of uh, the, the, the Edge in Malaysia and the CEO, I gave them the data because they knew it was a scam, but they didn't have the proof. I wasn't sure it was a scam, but I had the proof. So together, we put the pieces, uh, the one plus one make two, and it started like this. So Claire and them, they published articles. It was the beginning of, of one of the major financial crime discovery in history. And of course, what happened is that the stupid guy or the messenger was arrested. 
because they want they want they wanted to silence me for no other reason. I was I was arrested under the pretext of uh, blackmail blackmail attempt because I had some money that they were owing me, but that's not re relevant in the in the full picture. But I, I was arrested. So, so a couple of questions there on the logistics. Um, so when, when the journalists contact you, at, at that point, um, I'm, I'm assuming it was confidential and they were not supposed to use your name. So how do, how do people find out it was you or, or were you okay with them using your name? I, I wasn't okay, but it's, it's, it, at, at the end, it's not really important. What happened, happened. I could have done things dif differently, but I gave the data and so she, she published the, the the information. She took she took some documents, and you could see because this was the, the data. I plugged it in my computer. I made a copy for her. So when you open, I, I'm not a IT guy at all. But when you open the data, you can see the name of the computer of the guy that made the copy, and that was it. When when they did their probably investigation, these criminals, they saw Xavier J. I mean, and there was not a lot of people anyway in Petrosadi that could have access to those documents. Right, because it was only five people. Well, it was like this. Okay, okay. So then they they basically um, they accuse you of of basically trying to extort them, and at that point you're in Thailand. So what happens next? So I'm arrested, and um, it's it's very complicated. It's a very long story. But I will try to make it short. So I'm arrested, and uh, so I'm, I'm presented to the press. I'm in the in the office of the chief of police of Bangkok, uh, who is like the number ten of, of the country. I'm like, I'm, my lawyers, local lawyers, they are quite astonished because for a case of blackmail attempt, first you never go to jail, and secondly, you are not in the office of the chief of the police. Uh, it was. It is still a military regime. So the chief of the of the police is a major major uh, major player in, in in the country. So the chief of police introduced me to a guy. Say this is Scotland Yard. Okay, I was quite surprised. And uh, to make it short, they offered me the guy from Scotland Yard, Paul Finnegan, offered me a deal: plead guilty, confess what we are what we are going to ask you to confess, and you will be home uh, in a couple in a few weeks, couple of months. And I said, there is no way I'm not going to plead anything guilty or anything else. I'm, I'm, I'm not guilty. I haven't done anything. So he gave me a choice uh, of like changing my mind or going to prison. And I said, All right, let's go to prison. So I went to prison, uh, the worst cell of Thailand, of course. They, they wanted to, me to... I cannot to... imagine. I'm so sorry. Oh, it's okay. You can't imagine. I mean, uh, depends on your generation. If you have seen the movie Midnight Express, you may realize a little bit what it is. If not, just Google type prison and you will see it's beyond humanity. It's there is no morality. There is no legality of the system. It, but it is what it is. I, I, I mean, I was in jail. I was in jail. So they let me rot there for uh, three days. They came back and this Paul Finnegan said, OK, Xavier, last chance for you. I'm, I'm leaving today if you don't if you don't agree. Do you want to cooperate with us? Plead guilty and confess what we are going to tell you. Or you want to spend nine to ten years in this particular cell? So Olga, believe me, I had no choice. I mean, I confess that I could, I would have confessed everything. So they made me at, confess. At that point, do you have lawyers advising you? It's 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 getting bigger than that. It's getting bigger than that. So I had small lawyers from Thailand, and the people that sent me to jail that put the complaint is is the company Petrosali. Okay. Meaning Patrick Mahoney filed a complaint in in, uh, in, uh, in Thailand for this blackmail attempt. And he, he, he came to see me a day after Paul Finnegan and saying, thanks for cooperating. Uh, we'll take care of your wife. We'll take care of your, of your son. Everything will be fine. They will be protected. You have to cooperate, as you said. It's, uh, it's an international investigation. And we have taken uh, a, a big law firm for you and a very big uh, lawyer. The law firm in Switzerland is La Live. It's the second, the first, second or third law firm in Switzerland. It's, it's, it's a big one. It's not some small players from a small village. So they, if you understood well, they, the people that, that send me to jail, who send me to jail, they choose my lawyer, they paid my lawyer. You may say, but you shouldn't accept that. Yeah. I have choice. I was in a Thai jail. I'm an ex-banker. It's not that it's a big quality, but I was 
use pretty much to a kind of good life. You can even say a luxury life. So when you are sent in a tight gel, you sleep in the ground like a dog. No, my dog has a mattress. There, there is no mattress. There is a hole for water, for the shower, for brushing your teeth and for do, for, to do whatever your body needs to do. So you have what no are, choice. What, what about, and I know I'm getting very detailed, but I'm just trying to understand, um, what about like your consulate? Like do you contact the, the you're a Spanish citizen, right? So did they well, offer I'm any a, help? I'm a Swiss citizen. I was registered in Thailand as a Swiss citizen by chance. Because I, if I were Spanish, I don't think I will be here talking to you today. Being Swiss, even if it's a small country, gives you a lot of uh, visibility. So uh, first, the first time the consul came to see me, of course, I confess I was a criminal. So he, he treated me uh, nice. Right, because they had asked nice. you to confess. I confess that I was a criminal. So the, 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 the Swiss authorities treated me at the very beginning as a criminal, because if you said that you are a bad person, that you stole data, that you playing with the opposition and that you want to overthrow a, a legit regime, of course, you are seen as a criminal. But that was at the beginning. At the end, and we'll go, we'll go to the end, uh, I have nothing except good things to say about uh, the, the Swiss authorities. The, not Maybe not the judiciary part of the Swiss authorities, but the political authorities, they protected me like, uh, like I was a very important uh, guy in the story. Well, that's good to hear. Um, so there were very important players, right? We have, and, and in terms of characters that we had in this puzzle, we had the Malaysian Prime Minister Najib Razak, right? And we also have um, a Malaysian businessman and apparently a Hollywood financier who was producing a bunch of Hollywood movies here in the U.S. Um, Lojo, and I keep saying Lo his name, and I, I have to stop myself from saying J Lo, <laughs> like the singer, uh, yeah. Joe Lo. Uh, so my understanding is that Joe Lo, uh, and he was living life large, um, you know, partying with famous people and, and spending crazy amounts of money. So he was, it's ironic because, you know, he's doing something illegal and obtaining funds in, in illegal ways, but he's very high profile, right? Like he's not trying to, 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 to lead a low profile life. Um, so my understanding is he's still, I suppose he's a fugitive. Uh, people can't find him. Of course, he's um, a fugitive. Yeah, he's a fugitive and the US government uh, confiscated a lot of his wealth um, here, in, I, I guess that he had here in the US. Um, but Najib Razak, the former prime minister of Malaysia, um, he was recently in August of 2022, he finally exhausted his his appeals. And my understanding is that he's now serving uh, time in prison. Is that right? Yes, I'm not longer the only one that went to prison. Now I have the privilege to be accompanied by, by a former prime minister. Uh, he was sentenced. Is the, 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 the one MDB uh, trial is still ongoing. He was sentenced for another case, but it's the same. He took money from the from the people as it was his money. It's a cold, the SRC case, he was sentenced to 12 years. Now there is the, the one MDB case that is going to end soon. He's probably going to be found guilty another, uh, again. Uh, so do you finally get that? Um, because for many years, right? Like the only person that, and, and, and you as a whistleblower, you were the one that brought these things to light. Um, and again, for me, it's mind blowing that that it ended up like that for you, right? That it's just you don't hear these types of stories that often, right? But Where it didn't, end. it didn't end, Olga. It's still ongoing. Believe me, you will hear the, the next part after. But going back to the prime minister, I'm still. I mean, I, of course, I have contacts with uh, with Malaysian people that know very well the system there, and there are a lot of rumors. I don't know. Uh, they are just saying that as as soon as the one MDV trial will be finished and he will be sentenced, he will apply for a royal pardon that he may receive. I don't know. Uh, the, the only good thing that I see now that finally a criminal is sent to jail, and hopefully this will show the Swiss authorities that maybe they could do the same with Petro Saudi. Tarek Obeid and Patrick Mahoney are under investigation since 2017 for aggravated money laundering, 
bribery of foreign officials and many others. Five years of in investigation, it's, it's, I, I'm not a judge, so I don't want to judge them officially. I know the truth. Everybody knows the truth. Uh, other people have been sentenced. Their accomplices have been sentenced. But in Switzerland, the financial crime is not seen as bad as, as it is in other countries, apparently. Yeah, and I, I guess that leads to my next question. So in your view from, you know, because this is um, this has been ongoing for at least a decade. And like you said, it's still ongoing uh, and people perhaps are still being investigated. But do you think that being a whistleblower or the concept of whistleblowing? I mean, I know in the US we have more protection sometimes than in other countries, but um, just globally, do you think that the concept of whistleblowing is is that evolving over time? Like, do you think that there's a better understanding of whistleblowers and 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 sort of the protections that they should be afforded, or or what are your thoughts on that? I mean, again, it it it, it will be quite surprising for the audience if they don't know the, the the case very much. So there is a new European law that is being passed in a few countries. I think Germany has, has refused to pass the law today or yesterday, but uh, they, 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 we, will, we are moving forward. So there will be these new laws about whistleblower protections. But Switzerland is not really the, the best example of that. We still don't have any law protecting whistleblowers. And it's even worse than that. I'm considered as the whistleblower of the one in DB case. I, I don't want to name me as a whistleblower. It's uh, other people call me like this. I just did what I had to do, morally speaking. But to give you an example of this, this incredible story. So uh, Switzerland filed a complaint in 2017 against the people of Petro Saudi for, as I said before, aggravated money laundering, bribery of foreign officials, misleading the justice and others like this. So I'm a witness. In October, uh, last time I, I went already three times. To, to help the Swiss authorities with my testimony. So I'm the witness. At the same time, in 2019, Switzerland, that is asking for my help, has put me under investigation for industrial espionage because they gave the data to another party. So uh, Switzerland may not be the best example of whistleblower protection. Right, yeah. Yeah, that, that's so interesting. Um, so, do you ever think back on your choice and will you still make the same choice now that that you did, you know, but given everything that you've been through, uh, now I mean, knowing if, this, will you still do it? If I, I mean, or what, what have you, what, what do you think you would do differently if you, if you were going to do it again? So first, will I do that again? That's the question is easy. But the question is, will you do the same knowing the outcome or not? If you don't know the outcome, if I didn't, if I don't know the outcome, I will do the same 100%. That's who I am. Knowing that after all those years, uh, for example, the people of Petro Saudi, for example, Patrick Maoni is, is uh, he has kids, which is uh, which it's okay to have kids. They are in one of the best schools of Switzerland in uh, near Tukstad. Mr. Obed is living in a very beautiful environment in Geneva, enjoying still money, stolen money. Okay, now we have Mr. Razak that is in, in jail. Mr. Jolo is living a good life in China with billions that he still has. Uh, all the bankers in, involved, nobody was, there's, there were some blames, some banks have been fine. All the lawyers that took a lot of money of this, uh, of this, uh, of this uh, scam, they are living a very good life. As of today, in, uh, in uh, February 2023, I have no job, Olga. My wife, neither. We are branded. I'm branded. Uh, if I say Xavier Justo, I say, ah, who? Yes, we love what you did. You have high values. We love your morality, but we can't hire you, you know. We have partners. There is a risk, a reputational risk. So I haven't been on all, you know, I, my son is eight years old. My only son. If you think it's easy when he look at you in the morning and say, Dad, why haven't we going on holidays for the last three years? Why don't we do that? Why don't we have that? So knowing that my family is suffering like hell uh, and having all the other, the, the, and having the criminals that pretty much have the same life, 
my wife has been manipulated. She has been tortured mentally for 18 months. I've been deprived of the company of my son for 18 months. We are the only ones that are still suffering. Is that fair? I don't think so. Will I put my family again? Will I put my son again in this situation? Will I put myself in, in this situation? Uh, honestly, I don't think so. Yeah, no, and, and that is that is so appalling. Um, I, I, knowing I that you know, pity. you don't need to have pity. That's the situation. I, I think, and I'm quoting uh, the former U.S. Attorney General Loretta Lynch. Um, but it was basically the co-conspirators laundered their stolen funds through a complex web of opaque transactions and fraudulent shell companies with bank accounts in countries around the world, including Switzerland, Singapore, and the United States. And we're talking about 4.5 billion of alleged um, funds that were basically stolen. And I just cannot believe if it had been done, for example, under something like a False Claims Act, you will be wealthy right now. Um, you know, you, I, mean, <laughs> I had the discussion. I never did anything for the money. That's uh, that's how stupid I am. But I'm okay with what I did and who I am. But to give you an example, Goldman Sachs have been fined two billions or two point something billions in the one MDB affair. If I have done things differently or in a smart way, like, for example, going through an attorney or other organization, I would have we're, been we're not We're not so bad attorneys sometimes. We can no, no, be no. helpful. If, I, if I'm alive today, if I'm here today, there are three people involved, my wife and two Swiss lawyers, not the first one, other lawyers that took care of, my, of me, of my family. But going back to the lawyers, there are beautiful people like they're all the, I mean, that's you are all human beings. You have good bankers, bad bankers, right, good lawyers, right. like uh, like. But going back to the, to the, to the to the money part, the funny thing is that some people sometimes when when we speak say, "Hey Xavier, you know that just for the Goldman Sachs part as a fine, you should have you could have received between three hundred to six hundred million dollars." Right? Yeah. I mean, it's okay. It, it, it doesn't affect me. Yes, it, it, sometimes when I when I'm struggling for the last ten days of the month, I'm like <laughs> really. I mean, but that's okay. Uh, uh, I never did that to 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 for for, for the sake of money. But yeah, um, but I think us as the public, uh, you know, watching your story on the sidelines, you know, we we wish you would um, well, yeah. not only not having you know I, I wish you wouldn't have had to go to jail for example or, or prison in thailand but at least we wish you had a, a you know a, a better uh result in terms of compensation i mean you say that it's been difficult for you to find um work um and you know these are the things that you hope that if justice is being served that you, that you wouldn't have to deal with it and like i said most companies you know your your case is so extreme because it wasn't a real company. You know, we represent companies all the time. And yes, people make mistakes and, and, and especially large companies, employees leaving, going and institutional knowledge lacking and, you know, certain things happen. But the extent of your situation and, and it, how, um, you know, how high profile some of these individuals were, like, have you ever... Have you ever been afraid for your safety, like your actual personal safety, even now? No, I, I, so honestly speaking, when I uh, when I went back from Thailand, when I was released, the 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 first couple of months in Geneva, we had feelings that we were followed and so on. So we we found a kind of protection. But I don't know. One day, like talking with my wife, we said we are not the ones that have to be afraid. We are the good right. guys. The criminals in life should be afraid of going to jail. Good people shouldn't be afraid of retaliation. It, it, it can't work like that. But it works like that. In another example that just I want to, to, to tell you before, before, I, before I forget. So I have to fight. We have to fight as a family against those people. We are helping Switzerland with no financial help. And I don't want financial help to, to help my country. But... These people, Petro Saudi, and you can Google it. You can, I mean, you're a lawyer. You will find it uh, quicker than anybody. They have been receiving 
a million per month from uh, from an amount that is frozen in London, it, it, pending a, a, the resolution of an international dispute. There is 350 million in London that Malaysia wants, that uh, Venezuela wants, and that the US wants. It's 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 something related to to Petro Saudi in Venezuela, but that's not the important thing. The important thing that this money is frozen, but meanwhile a judge has authorized Petro Saudi to withdraw a million per month to pay their legal fees. So that's why they're not in jail. Last time, two years ago, I went to, when I had my deposition in Switzerland in the case of of the Swiss authorities, they 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 came with probably five of the almost. I don't want to say best lawyers because there are, it's it's a qualification that I don't like, but with expensive lawyers, when you pay well those people, they know how to find a loophole. They, they, they have been trying to dismiss the prosecutor already three times just yeah. to, to, to win time. And you know why? Because in 18 months, Olga, in 18 months, they have been under investigation for like already more than five years. If in 18 months they are not sentenced, they will we will reach the status of limitation, and you know what that means. That means that we will say, "Oh, sorry for the for the for, for uh, the inconvenience. Please uh, go back home and enjoy life." And they may be even to able to sue the the Swiss authorities or Swiss Confederation for damages. It, it, we just have eighteen months more. Switzerland has eighteen months to prove that we are not a banana republic. And and and, um, and I hope that they prove that they're not. Um... So. What what will you recommend if 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 there's so I guess the advice is two different types of advice one one for the person the employee that is um, concerned about potential issues with their company and and how to depending on on the compliance programs in place there may be some channels where they can voice their concerns or maybe not so what would be your recommendation for someone who is thinking, hey, I, I have some concerns. Um, and I, like I said, in your case, it's so extreme. I mean, most of our listeners are going to be compliance folks, right? That they actually have a compliance job, like their company hire them to help with compliance. And um, But from a high level, like what will be your number one recommendation for someone thinking of potentially, um, you know, blowing the whistle? As you said, I, I'm not a model. My case is quite extreme, but I mean, as an employee, if you don't trust the, the, your, your superiors, if you don't trust your company, th there are ways. I mean, you have beautiful lawyers. I don't want to mention any name. You have beautiful lawyers that will guide you through the process. That's yeah. Yes, you you need to you you need to use professionals. I did by myself because I thought I was smart. I saw that by giving to the press, I, I will remain safe. It, that was a, probably my biggest mistake. So anybody, if you don't trust the company, the best thing is to go through the compliance and to go through the to your company. I mean, people do mistakes. Not all companies are corrupt. It's, right. It may be just a problem that you can solve uh, from inside. If not, if you think that there is something fishy, if you think that the company will never act against some potential criminal act, I will go through 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 a lawyer. It, it's so important. It, I, I think it's so important for employees to feel empowered. And, and when we're assisting companies set up compliance programs, I think that's something that we always take in mind or, you know, keep in mind, because how do how do we escalate and how do we ensure that, that employees understand that if, if they have concerns, they can report them, that they'll be taken seriously. Um, we, we always advise companies be open about potential issues, right? That's the best way of learning things Absolutely. that you would otherwise not learn. It actually can yeah. save you millions of dollars. If, if some mm -hmm. of these things continue and you find out later, or if your competitor calls the authorities rather than, it's sometimes the knowledge that comes from the employees that are on the ground, that are dealing with the day-to-day, -day, that's very invaluable knowledge that you can get. If you if you channel it appropriately, if you know how to handle it, um, Obviously, no retaliation against the employee, but even beyond no retaliation, like keeping the employee involved and letting them know um, this is how we're dealing with. It. Uh, we, we, I, I think I mentioned at the beginning, we had one of our largest cases, recent largest cases. It was it started with an employee. It started with an employee that was very nervous about a certain something that was happening at the company, and you know it took a while for this company to to sort of 
figure out what's going on. But eventually it gets to the CEO and the CEO took it very seriously. The CEO hired us. And, and, and so, you know, it ended up leading to voluntary disclosures to, to several agencies and led to no penalty case, right? Because ultimately the employee led to, hey, we need to pay attention to this area. And once we paid attention to the area, they invested funds in that area. We, we They cleaned it up. They had compliance programs. They, so from a business perspective, I feel like there's this fear for, for whistleblowing. But if I think if you know how to channel that appropriately, you, you get invaluable information. And it's just a matter of knowing how to deal with it and, and getting the employees involved and, and understanding. And of, of course, there could be some situations where the employee thinks something that it wasn't really the case, right? And there's a difference between good faith and bad faith allegations. I think, you know, obviously, if an employee is making things up, well, you know, that, that has to be dealt with accordingly. But for the most part, I think employees raising concerns are are, are trying to help. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and it's so interesting in the U.S. Um, almost every month now, at least in my world, we deal a lot with yes, anti-corruption, FCPA, but also um, customs fraud and export and economic sanctions. We're seeing a lot more FCA cases, the False Claims Act, which is the Kitam actions, meaning private citizens suing on behalf of the U.S. government, and I think that's just going to continue increasing because there is um, compensation. Right. And employees that are uh, not taken seriously, that I think that that could be a risk for companies if, if they fail to act, if they fail to have some kind of policy to channel these things. Because it, I know it sounds, well, how, what do you mean channel? In, in large companies, you know, you can have an employee in a warehouse complaining about something. You have to have a way for that employee to contact the right person and to be escalated accordingly in a quick enough fashion that it doesn't get out of control before somebody contacts the government, right? Um, so I think that those kinds of cases are here to stay, at least in the U.S., um, with, with some of the protections that we have. And not just protections, but people can make a good chunk of money, right? So that's going to be uh, an incentive as well. Um, yeah, so I, your story is just... It's just um, I, I don't see. I think the vast majority of people are are, are good people. When, when somebody wants to report a problem or something that is not going well, it's not about the money. It's probably the case. Five percent of the time, most people wants to help their company because most of the people are sentimentally involved with their company. So right. help those people. I mean, the the, the biggest asset of a company is, is not the inventory. It's, not, it's nothing else than the human beings working for you. Yeah, and and we I should, think we we're should also mandate, entering... I'm sorry, we should put people from the, the, the chief of compliance should sit in the board of the company. Yeah, and I think also things are changing rapidly. Um, like, for example, I don't know if you've heard of the term ESG, environmental sustainability. Oh, yeah. So so we're, we're getting into an era where you cannot ignore certain things, right? Certain laws. Um, the, and there's the social aspects to ignoring whistleblowers that, okay, you you potentially knew you had issues and you ignored and you try to, you know, terminate or you didn't take it seriously. So, so we're seeing a lot more compliance focus, right? Where your reputation, forget about the business side, your reputation alone in being involved in certain acts or, or failure to act in certain situations could actually get you in a lot of trouble with you know, more activist investment now, investors and and just more active consumers, more informed consumers. So, um, you know, again, your case is just so out of the ordinary in the sense that there was no compliance program. There was no, uh, you know, the, the company itself was a shell company, right? So I there can were, see... There were compliance officer in the really? banks. In the banks. The, oh, yeah, I, in the banks, in the banks, yeah. And, well, and that's the, also why it makes your story so. How can it even? I, I, I still don't comprehend. My, my, my head doesn't understand how the banks even permitted loans to happen, right? It's just. What, what is the main purpose of a bank? Make money. Yeah. <laughs> so sometimes people they, they 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 forget probably about moral values in exchange of money. It's it's it. I'm just summarizing it. It's. And there, I mean, for example, goods that have been 
they laundered one point, almost 1.5 million in this case, in this particular case, more than a billion. They just received a blame and they were just obliged to pay back the, the profits they made with that money, which is nothing. A couple it, of it, millions. It is, in my head, I just can't even understand how it happened because banks are actually some of the most compliant in industry generally, right? I mean, they have, um, they have really good compliance programs. They have, like you said, compliance officers, but in general, they have compliance for a reason. Um, I know, for example, um, recently, I think it was enacted in December 2022, so a few months back, um, the Anti-Money Laundering Whistleblower Improvement Act, which is, I guess, an analogy will be the FCA, but now in, uh, uh, for the Bank Secrecy Act. Um, so basically, again, it incentivizes people to report violations of this act, the Bank Secrecy Act, uh, to federal officials, and it expands the, the, the scope of economic sanctions violations rep reportable under the ABA uh, BSA whistleblower provision. So it's, it's also kind of going to incentivize more reporting of bank um, compliance violations, basically. Um, and this is very recent, I mean, just a few months back, or I guess a month back. Um, so going back to banks, they are, are already highly regulated and they already have such compliance programs. Again, it goes back to your case being so unique. Well, that if I may say something, I started in 1987 at UBS, the biggest bank of Switzerland, in Switzerland. In 87, and for a few years, you could go to the bank with a bag full of money and say, I want to open a bank account, and just you need to say this money comes from my whatever uh, real estate uh, company. They would never even ask for numbers. At that time, lawyers could open bank accounts without disclosing the, the beneficial owner. That was 35 years ago. Today, in 2022-23, you have zillions of regulation. I mean, when I see the books of my friends still working in the banking industry, they, they have so many regulations, but it's always the same. If you don't apply the regulation, right. guidance are just words in a piece of paper. That's it. It's as simple as that. I think I do. I, I said that uh, previously. Um, I do think that today we have invented all the rules and regulation for the next 100 years. But if we don't apply them, it's worthless. Yeah, and, and that's that's actually really interesting that you mentioned that every time we're doing training on compliance and whatever the program, you know, FCPA or Export Economic Sanctions, we always say it's not about having a compliance program in place, like a manual, like a written policy. If you put it on the shelf and you never read it, you never train your people, it's actually worse to have it because it creates some kind of knowledge that you know you're supposed to be following these rules. If it is not followed, it's actually worse than ha not having it at all. Um, so it is interesting in the case of banks, I mean, for the most part, it's very strong compliance programs, but you also have, even within the best-in-class compliance programs, you'll have individual people making decisions, right? So that's why it's so important to have layers of review. Um, and I still don't fully understand in your case how he gets approved and he doesn't get checked by somebody else. And I, I think that's why didn't, um, I think it was Goldman Sachs that had to pay $2 billion in, in the case. I mean, it was a huge penalty. Yes, they they issue some bond for Malaysia for a few billions. And instead of uh, getting the normal rate would have been, or normal fee would have been 30 million probably, they receive, uh, I think, 600 million as a commission. Mm -hmm. So, for your bank, if you receive as a commission, not net new business, just nice commission, maybe you don't want to check your uh, anti-money laundering uh, manual in a very good way. Well, or, I, I, I know the government tried to the government tried to get them at the end uh, with that huge penalty they had to pay, and plus, I mean, reputation as well. Should have paid um, that, but that's okay. That's uh, yeah. a personal. Thing. Yeah. Well, uh, we're running out of time, um, Javier, and I'm, I'm really grateful that you that you decided to come on board and participate in the podcast. I think it's going to be um, 
a refresher for our audience, a lot of, again, compliance professionals, attorneys, um, to see the worst case scenario. Um, I think everybody will walk away thinking, hey, at least my com company has a compliance program in place. Um, you have you have dealt with a, a, a very unique situation. And, and, and like, like I said at the beginning, it, it's it's almost like a Hollywood movie, your story. Um, just in this, what happened to you, prison time, um, you know, how long it took to some for some of these actors to even face justice. And some of them are still fugitives and enjoying, like you said, you know, spending millions of dollars and living great lives with stolen money. Um, I, I do hope that some of these investigations bring bring some of that justice because the victims of all of these were the Malaysian people. Um, so it's it's, you know, for humanity's sake, hopefully the authorities will will bring justice and, and you know, some of these individuals will will end up, um, you know, serving time or or having to at least uh, give that money back. Um, Absolutely. I wish and, any to, closing to... words that you want to give us? No, I, I would like to say thank you to you, Olga, and to your company and to the people uh, listening to my horrible French accent. But uh, <laughs> I hope that you have enjoyed, in a way, the, the podcast. And... Uh, my book, our book, we wrote a beautiful book. I think it's a beautiful book. My wife and I about all this personal experience. It's not really a financial book, but uh, it will be out the 18th uh, of this month. 18, and where can people buy it? Amazon. Amazon. And what's the title? Rendezvous with Injustice. That's a, that's a powerful title. But thank you. Thank you so much again for, for joining You're us welcome. today. Hopefully we can stay in touch. Um...